Welcome to Conservation Today. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County. I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today, I would like to talk to you about a BLM old-growth forest and why one of the oldest groves of trees that we have in the Umpqua is in danger of being clear-cut soon, perhaps as soon as next week. Later in the show, we will hear from Kevin Matthews, a forest activist from Cottage Grove. Kevin will talk about why the timber industry in Oregon pays a lot less taxes than you do on your private land. But first, we are going to talk about some other sweetheart deals the timber industry gets and why a public old-growth forest is in danger of being clear-cut by Lone Rock Timber next week. Now, in in previous shows, we heard from Daniel Robertson explaining why the BLM land around Roseburg is in a one-square-mile checkerboard with private industrial timberland. Look on any map showing land ownership, and you will see the checkerboard. In summary, Daniel explains that in the late 1800s, the federal government gave railroad companies every other section of land to help finance public transportation and help settle the West. One uh, one section is one square mile. The Oregon and California Railroad, ONC, was given a large land grant of every other section in western Oregon from the Pacific Ocean to the foothills of the Cascades. The deal was that they were to sell this land to settlers to help finance the railroad. But they didn't. They sold it to timber companies instead. Because of this breach of their contract, the federal government revested these lands, they took them back, uh, for the Department of Interior to manage. This is why the BLM owns every other section of land in a checkerboard around Roseburg and why they call it the ONC lands. Uh, the other part of the checkerboard, not owned by BLM, is often owned by the timber industry due to abuse of the Homestead Act and other land grants back in the late 1800s. In 1901, there were the famous land fraud trials that found politicians, surveyors, and others guilty of fraudulently taking this land. But in the end, they actually got to keep the land that they took. So today, every other section around Roseburg is managed by the BLM, and every other section is privately owned, often by a timber company. But trying to manage every other section of land is a problem, especially for building logging roads. So in the 1950s, the BLM signed a contract with all the timber companies for what's known as a reciprocal road right-of-way agreements. Reciprocal means that either party can use each other roads. Now, and this is so either landowner now can claim a right to build a road through the other's property. Now, unfortunately, in the 1950s, little consideration was given to environmental concerns. Yet these road right-of-way agreements are today being issued. The BLM claims that if a timber company asks to build a road through our public forest, the BLM cannot say no under any circumstances except maybe excessive erosion or if there was another more direct route available. This brings us to talking today about a very old BLM forest. It's perhaps over 400 years old. It's about two miles north of Susan Creek Falls, north of the North Umpqua Highway. Lone Rock Timber owns the land next to this BLM old-growth forest. And Lone Rock Timber wants to clear-cut their land by building a new road through our public old-growth BLM land. The BLM usually discloses when they will clear-cut an old native forest, and they allow the public to comment on it in their NEPA procedures. But the BLM never disclosed this imminent clear-cutting, and you were never asked to comment on this BLM action. Now, you might have seen a Facebook page circling around Douglas County this week asking you to ask the BLM not to allow the logging of this forest. 
This centuries-old grove of trees is habitat for many species that depend on old trees for a home, wildlife that cannot live in young plantations because they need a greater diversity of homes to choose from. Plantations really don't have much living in them at all. Wildlife need old trees with rotten spots that provide cavities and cavities that provide cozy nesting sites. At the least, if old growth trees like these are slated to be cut, the BLM first surveys the trees to see what wildlife is living there. Right now, April and May is nesting season for many birds, and many of them could be raising a family right now in this old growth forest. Normally, the BLM requires trees to be cut after nesting season later in the summer. But this time, the BLM is allowing Lone Rock Timber to cut these trees down during the nesting season without even doing surveys first to see what birds they will be killing. Baby birds cannot just fly away. They will die when their home hits the ground, and these century-old forests will die too. Not only is the BLM allowing Lone Rock Timber to cut these trees down without doing surveys first, they are letting Lone Rock Timber purchase these old-growth trees at a price they have negotiated in secret. There was no public auction, as is usual for when BLM sells public forests. There's usually a public auction, and we all know what price is being paid. But Lone Rock Timber will get these trees at a negotiated price, a backroom deal that the public is not privy to. And so far, the BLM is not making public what that price is, in spite of the many requests we have given them to do so. The BLM's uh, recent update of their resource management plan prohibits the BLM from logging old-growth forests like this. This forest is considered a late successional reserve. It's reserved for spotted owls and old-growth dependent species. So this incredibly terrible timber sale is happening virtually in secret because of those 1950s reciprocal road right-of-way agreements the BLM signed with private corporate timber companies that allow each other to build roads through their lands. And this grove of old growth has been targeted by Lone Rock Timber for one of their new roads. And the BLM is allowing it to happen in secret, uh, with, with a secret price, and without any public notification whatsoever. The BLM has agreed <clears throat> to allow Lone Rock Timber to clear-cut a quarter-mile-long road with a cutting width of about 70 feet wide, virtually a double-lane road. And in the middle of this road, BLM is allowing Lone Rock Timber to build a large truck turnaround, a wide turnaround. So a wide circle, perhaps a couple hundred feet in diameter, will be clear-cut and the forest floor flattened right in the middle of this forest. The BLM is also allowing what they call a waste area under the adjoining old growth trees where an area of all the stumps and branches will be piled and pushed to after the old growth trees in the right of way are cut down. Now, you know, the BLM claims their hands are tied by the 1950 road right of way agreements. They agreed to this back in 1950 and they can't say no now is what the BLM claims. Whatever Lone Rock Timber wants, Lone Rock Timber gets, including that huge truck turnaround right in the middle of the public forest, including a secret bid price, including cutting it down without consultation to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about the spotted owl habitat and without any surveys to see how many nesting birds are in there. Lone Rock Timber claims they need to access their little 19-acre tree plantation next to the BLM forest. Now, it appears Lone Rock has logged this little 19 acres before without the need to build a road through the BLM's old-growth forest. Why do they need to build it now? Well, well, things are different now. The price of logs are sky-high right now due to the reconstruction of last year's hurricanes around the United States. So there's a lot of demand for timber now. 
And that BLM, old growth forest, is worth a lot of money. We can see that there are existing roads, existing, well, they're old roads that Lone Rock Timber built, you know, years ago through the Lone Rock Timber unit. We can see these on LIDAR images that we have. Roads, existing roads that go right to the top of their unit, very close to where the end of the BLM road would be. They clearly don't need to build this BLM road to get to the top of their unit. And and their own roads, Lone Rock Timber's own roads, would be a much more direct route instead of going all the way around the mountain and coming back up through the BLM road. You know, but apparently their existing roads with more direct access, it won't change BLM's mind. Believe me, we've tried. BLM is allowing Lone Rock Timber to clear-cut the longer route and the more lucrative route through our public forests. A group of us from Umpqua Watersheds and Cascadia Wildlands have met with the BLM and pressured them not to allow this or at least to do wildlife surveys first so they can measure the damage they are doing. But the BLM claims their hands are tied by the 1950 reciprocal road right-of-way contracts, and they can't even survey for the wildlife first, and they have to let them do a huge truck turnaround. When just about 500 feet away uh, from where this truck turnaround is proposed is a big gravel turnaround they could use instead. Now, we disagree with the BLM that they are being forced by Lone Rock Timber to do this damage. But even though we disagree, you know, we're not likely to be able to drag them through court before this stand of old growth forest is lost. Uh, BLM says that they might be able to start logging as early as next week. Even though, in their original agreement, the BLM asked them to wait until the dry season, mid-May, or in another paper, BLM asked them to wait until after the nesting season. And of course, Lone Rock Timber doesn't have to do any of this. They could just clear-cut right now. And apparently they're going to do it soon. Now, this isn't the first time Lone Rock Timber has decided the best location for their new logging roads is through a BLM old-growth forest. When we were looking at the Swiftwater Park sale, remember that sale from Douglas County to BLM? We were looking at the area that was north of the North Umqua Highway. There's a big section of the park up there. And when we were looking at at that nearby, adjacent to it, not through it, adjacent to it, we found another area of huge stumps with trees freshly cut and yarded by Lone Rock Timber through a BLM old-growth forest. Right there, another reciprocal road wider way agreement that's not disclosed to the public by BLM. We just happen to run across it. There are rumors that uh, that private corporate timberlands are targeting the BLM forest more often for these roads, apparently because it is a good opportunity to log otherwise reserved forests. Now, to investigate this rumor, Cascadia Wildlands did a FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act request, to see all the recent road right-of-way agreements in the Swiftwater Resource Area. Now, we'll let you know what we find out when we eventually might get these documents. Now, some of you might know that four times a year, every quarter, the BLM publishes something they call their planning quarterly update, which informs the public of projects the BLM is planning or implementing on your public forest. BLM gives updates on timber sales that they want to plan, and they let the public know when the public can comment on different projects. The BLM used to publish these road right-of-way agreements in those planning updates. They would list which industrial corporation is asking to build a road through which BLM forest. They would include the age of the forest, the length of the proposed road, and other information so we would know what was happening. But in recent years, the BLM has stopped doing this. They changed their quarterly updates from disclosing all projects on public lands to only what the BLM considers discretionary actions. 
on BLM lands. The BLM claims the reciprocal road right-of-way agreements are non-discretionary, so why bother the public with such details? Of course, we do want to know when and how private corporate timber companies are logging the public forest. If they want to log, if they want to build a road through a 40-year-old forest, that's one thing. But if they want to build a road through a 140-year-old forest or a 400-year-old forest that is not the most direct access, or they already have access, we want to know about it. We want to check to make sure that BLM is not being overly generous. If an older forest is threatened, we want to make sure the timber company has revealed all their existing roads to BLM and make sure the BLM has decided what is the most direct access. We want to be able to argue if the timber company wants to build an unnecessary truck turnaround in the middle of the most lucrative public timber. Clearly, the BLM needs a little oversight in their decisions on these roads. Now with that, we're going to have to take a break. This is Conservation Today, and I am your host, Francis Etherington, talking to you about industry building their roads through BLM old growth forests. We'll be right back. We are back. This is Conservation Today. I'm Francis Etherington, and I am talking about a road north of Susan Creek Falls that Lone Rock Timber wants to build through Roseburg BLM old growth forest and the BLM claiming they have to let them do whatever they want to do because of the 1950 road right-of-way agreements. BLM is allowing this logging including cutting down spotted owl habitat, the best spotted owl habitat, during the nesting season without doing any wildlife surveys first including allowing a very wide, 70 feet wide, new road and a big truck turnaround without any official public disclosure, public comments, or even disclosing how much money Lone Rock Timber will pay us for this public timber. Now, Lone Rock Timber says they need to do this destruction to be able to yard their adjoining 19-acre tree plantation. Because Lone Rock Timber is currently logging and yarding most of that 19 acres now, it appears they need the new road through public forests to access just a small area of their unit. Now, not only did the BLM fail to acknowledge Lone Rock Timber had existing access, old logging roads going right on up there, and more direct access for most of their unit, The BLM failed also to ask Lone Rock Timber to consider other alternatives if it is just a small area Lone Rock needs to yard. Instead of building this 70-foot-wide logging road through some of the biggest trees left on the planet. I think this clearly shows that Lone Rock Timber is after after the public timber, that, that they want our public forests, and this is their excuse. They get a non-bid negotiated backroom deal to purchase the big trees and really increase their logging profits from just their little 19-acre tree plantation. And the BLM seems ready and willing to help them in any way to get that public timber and to kind of keep it a bit secret. We went to the Oregon Department of Forestry Ferns website to find out more about Lone Rock Timber's logging plans. Now, some of you out there know about the ODF Ferns website where you can uh, find out what your neighbor is logging next to you or aerial spraying next to you, or you can search for a township section range and see all the logging there. So we search for Township 26 West, Range 2, Section 2, And there on the Oregon Department of Forestry's state website, we found all of Lone Rock Timber's notifications of logging they had submitted to the state. There was a map of their 19-acre unit adjacent to the BLM lab. There was another map of the road that they planned to build through the BLM land. What was interesting 
of that map of the road through the BLM lands is that Lone Rock Timber reported to the state that they would get 36,000 board feet of timber. For those of you who don't recognize that type of measurement, 36,000 board feet is not very much. It's a very small amount. And we thought, wow, 36,000 board feet, that's really too low for a 70-foot wide road for a quarter mile with a big truck turnaround in the middle. So um, later, we asked the BLM about this, and they told us that the BLM had measured the amount of timber at three times that much, at a hundred more than three times, at 150,000 board feet. BLM told us that Lone Rock Timber will pay BLM for what the BLM measured, the 150,000 board feet, not the 36,000 board feet Lone Rock Timber reported to the state. And as I said earlier, unfortunately, the BLM has not yet disclosed how much money will change hands for that 150,000 board feet. But we wonder, why did Lone Rock Timber tell the Oregon Department of Forestry it was only 36,000 board feet, less than a third of the actual volume? Is it because Lone Rock Timber would only have to pay the state harvest tax on the lesser amount? You know, I don't know. I tried to call the state offices, and they were all confused, and nobody really knew, and everyone told me to call someone else, and then no one answered their phones, and then so. Why did Lone Rock Timber tell the state that this BLM road was only 36,000 board feet when it was clearly more than three times that amount? If any of you out there listening knows the incentive for Lone Rock Timber to do that, let me know. My email address is itsfrancis at gmail.com, I-T-S-F-R-A-N-C-I-S at gmail.com. And let me know why you speculate that uh, they really lowballed, that Lone Rock Timber really lowballed the volume that they told the state they were taking out of there. Has it got anything to do with the harvest tax or not? I'm here talking with Alex and Jim. And Alex and Jim have visited this stand of old-growth timber up that Lone Rock Timber wants to cut a road through. And thanks for talking with me. Uh, You have walked through this old-growth forest that is threatened with cutting. What was it like? I think it was a beautiful stand of trees. They're huge. They were uh, really special. They're all unique in their own way, too. And... I mean, I would love going through there on a trail on a regular basis. Did anybody measure the trees? Do you know exactly how big they are? I think they measured one at 72 inches. Six feet across. Yeah. Yeah. There was another one in the 60s. Yeah. There was at least 15 that were in that range. Right. From what we counted. In our group, we were talking about how it would be, the stand would make a beautiful hiking trail. Because if you've ever been to the Susan Creek Big Trees on the other side of the bridge, it it, that stand reminds you of the Susan Creek hiking trail because the trees are so diverse. There's uh, so many different species in there. You see hemlock, you see western red cedars, you see Douglas fir, and the cedars. The cedars are huge. You don't usually see cedars that big. I cannot believe how big the Douglas firs are in there. Definitely not something that you see cut nowadays. Um, there's probably spotted owls in that area. I mean, that's that's prime spotted owl habitat. The trees are big enough. There's snags in there that are, you know, craggy. They have the holes. The the canopy is quite diverse. Um, the there's the stand of trees is nice because there's big trees, there's smaller trees, there's mid-aged trees. So it's it, you know it's it's not like a plantation where it's all just one single size. And what will it look like after if a road is built in there? Big turnaround for vehicles, and it seems like they want to put the road directly through the heart of the big trees, the biggest in the unit that you can see at least. I mean, I don't know if there's a different way that it can go, but from what I could see, they definitely don't even need this road, which is the saddest part. Why don't they need the road? Well, you can tell the area that they've already clear-cut. You can see it when you're coming up the road. It's this huge, massive area, and if you look at the maps, you can see what area is theirs and what's area, uh, which area is BLM's. And you can see the little section that they have left 
has to be the area they claim they can't reach unless they have this road, which they could easily reach if they have men with chainsaws. Um, and there's just absolutely no reason, in my opinion, why they would need a road like this. So they've already logged and yarded most of that 19 acres. And the sad part is, is I mean, if you look at the, the small stand of trees that they claim they can't get, the trees are, are they're really young. I mean, they're, they're stick pole trees is what I, somebody mentioned toothpicks the other day. That's, that's essentially what I would call them. They're toothpicks and comparing them to what they're going to plow. I mean, the BLM unit, they want to go right through the heart of the biggest trees. And to compare these big trees to, you know, this tiny, small amount of land of toothpicks, essentially, is, it's beyond fathoming. Is it um, because they get a lot more timber? I mean, after all, the 19 acres isn't much. I think they would supplement it quite nicely with this BLM road. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if they, if they plowed the road through and they got these big trees, I mean, the in all honesty, the big trees and the road that they're going to plow through, just the trees that they're going to get from that road construction is far, far more money they're going to make off of it than the small little toothpicks that they claim they can't get to. And possibly their entire cut. I mean, with how large yeah. these trees are and how much wood they contain, it could be more money made in producing this road than what their entire 19-acre unit. That's what I would I think. I'm that. not an expert in that, but it appears that way. I mean, the trees to me are priceless, though, because you can't replace 400-year-old trees. And we'll never be able to bring, uh, bring trees like that back. I mean, you know, the rotation that they, they run is, is generally, you know, 40 to 60 years. And that, that's not enough to bring, you know, that clearly that's not enough to bring back what they're going to be cutting with this road. And in the middle is a, they've designated a truck turnaround. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that truck turnaround? We have, and everyone in the entire group that we were standing there, you know, we had showed them where the truck turnaround was gonna be and they were awestruck. They were, you know, they didn't understand why do they need such a large truck turnaround right here? And at the beginning of the, of the proposed road through BLM, there's an intersection right there that, I mean, is absolutely, it's one of the largest intersections I've come across because it's an intersection of uh, what four maybe five roads and it's huge they could easily turn around there they could turn around two trucks at the same time in that intersection it's so big it's specifically where they're going to do the truck turnaround is an area that you would imagine a campground or a day use area would be if this was a more used area i mean if you are walking into this grove from where you park you know it's kind of uh steep a little bit in spots but when you get to this area that's the truck turnaround it's this naturally kind of flattened out area where all these big trees are and it's just beautiful i mean it's absolutely gorgeous and it's an area you could spend a lot of time in if you enjoy things like that enjoy bird watching and being out in the forest a real forest and to want to flat it down and turn it into a flat road and a big turnaround i mean it just makes me run that song in my mind uh cut down paradise and put down a parking lot or whatever it goes like. Honestly, it's heartbreaking walking through the stand because you walk through it and it, like, like I said earlier, it's like walking through the Susan Creek stand, you know, that everybody loves. You see constantly see people crossing the bridge and walking through it. And it's such a well-loved place. And, and you see these trees, I mean, they're, and you know that they're irreplaceable. You know that once these trees are cut down, they'll never come back. And to think you're only a hop, skip, and a step away from the Susan Creek Falls and, you know, there's a Native American artifact area that's up there. And, you know, all of this comes together to just, it just breaks your heart. And you see so much destruction, is what I would call it, around this area of all these huge clear cuts. And not just the direct area, but when you're going up this road, you just see plantation and plantation, a huge clear cut and plantation. And you get to this little section of these natural trees and this natural stain, you're like, wow, something that is natural and native, how beautiful and unique. And to think they just want to put a road through it like it doesn't mean anything to them. Like there's no other value to it except the timber value. You know, and that's the sad part too, is the fact that you, when you go into this stand, you see the old growth and you're saddened by the old growth, but at the same time, you're also saddened if you look a little bit harder by the, the vine maple and the yews and the chinkapin and anything else that you see, the hardwood, any of the hardwoods, you're saddened because you know that that's just waste. 
that that's just going to be cut no matter what it is, no matter where it's at, no matter how big it is, no matter what age it is. And it's just going to be wasted because it's of no use to them. And you, you saw a, a flowers in there as well. Yeah. Already yeah. at this time of year because it's springtime. There's a few trilliums in you there. You can hear a bunch of birds singing. Little and... rattlesnake plants. Yeah, that's the one thing we noticed the last time we went in there. I mean, I've never, I've never been into an old growth grove, honestly. I can honestly say that where I've heard so many birds singing before. And to just think that you're standing there listening to that bird sing and it's sitting up in one of these large trees you know, bellowing its heart out and to think that that just the destruction that could come along and the loud noises and the, this, the, it's just terrible. I mean, that takes into account the, the, the frogs, the salamanders. I mean, you lift up, you go into an old growth forest, like the one that they want to pile the road through and you lift up any rock or you lift up. I mean, I lifted up a rock and there was like four centipedes underneath it. And you know, nobody takes into account the life of a centipede. But at the same time, it's all a web. It's all connected. And you start killing the centipedes and you start killing the, the salamanders and you start killing the frogs. And next thing you know, you've got nothing left. And that's not even to bring into account what they do on private industry land with the herbicide spraying and the pesticide spraying. I mean, they just kill everything that is there. And then the only sanctuary for these creatures are the BLM areas in the national forest areas where they don't spray. We were at the Susan Creek uh, day use area and we were waiting to go to go up to this unit to see it. And as we're standing in the Susan Creek day use area, they were helicopter spraying on the other side of the ridge. I mean, that close to the, to the North Umpqua River, you could see the helicopter fly over just over the top of the ridge and you could hear it circling around and circling around and it kept coming back and we're just, you know, and it makes you think all of the clear cuts around the BLM unit that they're going to push the road through, you know, they're going to herbicide spray and, and I'm sure rodenticide and all of those different sprays that they come in with. And you know, it's going to drift into this virgin grove. So, I mean, not just the road being plowed through, but the, the biological hazard that it's going to present from the drift of the sprays that they have. And whenever we get rain, it washes it right down into the creeks, which go down into the river. And on the second half of this show, we're going to be featuring Kevin Matthews, who recently gave a talk at a aerial herbicide spraying panel that was in Eugene just last week. And so we're going to hear uh, Kevin talk about the problems with the aerial herbicide spraying as well as uh, all the big tax breaks and all the sweetheart deals that the timber industry gets, including this sweetheart deal they've gotten here. We will take a break. This is Conservation Today, and I'm your host, Francis Etherington. We are back with Conservation Today. For the second half of our show, we will hear from Kevin Matthews. Kevin is speaking at a panel discussing the problems with industry helicopter spraying herbicides. He will talk about the sweetheart tax deals Big Timber has won in Oregon, as well as the myth that logging more public forests creates more jobs. Kevin does refer to some slides, but they are not necessary to understand his presentation. And now, here's Kevin. I'm Kevin Matthews. I'm a community advocate and environmental activist with a range of different groups on different topics and sometimes just working directly with grassroots folks. So th this picture is an old growth Douglas fir tree from Western Oregon. The old growth trees of Western Oregon very likely were the tallest living things on earth. This science is a little difficult because they were cut down before they were really being carefully measured and tracked. There's a, the people who are into like what's the tallest tree go back and forth between the tallest of the coast redwoods, certain wicked tall eucalyptus in Australia, and the, the Douglas firs. If the records of the old loggers are true, these were the tallest things on earth. And, and they looked like that. Um, so I'm really honored to be on this panel with all these folks working on this really important stuff. And I'm going to try to just add two pieces of context before we can get to some questions, hopefully. Um, and, and this is the first piece of context um, is, is about the history of our forests. Um, probably a lot of folks know this stuff, but I think it's important to honor 
what we had and to know what we had when we look at what we're fighting over today. And it kind of gives us a context for thinking about when we compromise, what we're compromising, and it gives a context to understand that we need a paradigm shift in how we're dealing with our forests and our environment. So this is McGowan Creek, which is a little preserved remnant of, um, of BLM land that has um, some beautiful big old trees, you know, four or five hundred years old, that, that are the, the trees that we call real old growth now, although they're juniors, you know, compared to the old growth that was here in 1859. But, and, 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 and I, I grew up um, kind of unconsciously as a kid, even though I was, you know, went to Audubon camp and saturated environmental learning and biology and so on, I just had this kind of strange question in the back of my head, you know, I love those giant trees and old fabulous things on the West Coast, you know, but what is it about the West Coast that has the, why are there giant trees there and, and not, not everywhere, you know, across North America, across the rest, of the, the rest of the temperate continents? Well, eventually I started to really delve into that question. And what I learned um, is that there were giant trees, maybe not as tall as our Douglas firs, but giant, amazing trees across North America. So these, this picture is taken in 1910. These are chestnuts, American chestnut trees, um, like in the Carolinas somewhere. Amazing, giant trees, you know. At first they were logged, and then the rest of them were killed by a blight. Um, and in New England, um, the white pines that are, that are the dominant conifer of, of New England um, they grew to eight feet in diameter on a regular basis. Giant trees. And the logging industry that um, you know, started with uh, selective logging in New England and clearing land and then became an industry in New England with water technology and then became a huge industry in what was called the Northwest of Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Minnesota where where Weyerhaeuser got started um, as a steam-powered um, industry. Then the railroads came across west, largely built with ties and trestles from that wood, and, and the industry cut its way across the continent. And what we're, what we're fighting for here is the remnant. So this is, you know, this is another example of the kinds of trees that were logged, you know, commercially and with, with real basic technology in Oregon. Um, probably most or all of those logs are just from one tree. You know, it's a, a single, a, a train of single log loads. And this is more what our, our trees look like now. Um, of course, they go a lot smaller than that. And, uh, you know, in, in the rotation times, uh, you know, if you think back, you know, what, what, to 20, 30, 40 years ago, they talked about rotation times, you know, 70-year rotations. Then they talked about 60-year rotations. They talked about 50-year rotations. I understand Weyerhaeuser now talks about 34-year rotations and doing less. And I'll tell you, if you have something you call a rotation and you shorten it by 10 years every decade, it's not a rotation. It's just another lie from Big Timber. It's just another piece of PR mythology. It's a death spiral. And that, that train full of those logs is very likely going to a place like the export terminal in Coos Bay. So the other thing that I want to uh, talk about, besides that historical context, is some of the economic context. And we've got some touching on that already, but you know, when we get to aerial spray, the industry's argument is we have to do it for economic reasons. It's, it's what's economical. Therefore, you know, we can do chemical trespass and threaten people, kids, families, communities, wildlife, the entire ecosystem. To understand the the economics and see perspective. Um, let's pause for a second and look at the BLM checkerboard. 
Um, this is a picture that I had a chance to take a few years ago from a, from a small plane. Um, and you know what you've got here is the forested squares, our BLM land, which is second, third growth, working forest, generating wood, generating income, building houses. Um, and what you have in between is the industrial forest squares. So this is a aerial view you know, of the pattern that you're seeing in some of the pictures before. And, and here's one of my pictures of a clear cut um, from the ground. And what, what's interesting about this, so this square corner, that's, that's the corner of the industrial square in the BLM checkerboard. And, and out here in the distance, you can see the next square. So that's, that's a mile. You know, the BLM checkerboard is exactly a mile on each side of those squares. A square mile is 640 acres. It's a surveyor's section. And um, as Francis re uh, referred to, the, the squares that are now industrial forest ownership, those were originally dedicated to be homestead land. The ones in between that are still reasonable working forests that are the Bureau of Land Management land, those were given to the Oregon Railroad, Oregon California Railroad Company to subsidize them building a railroad, and they didn't build the railroad, they just logged. So eventually, the federal government took back the railroad's squares. So the, the industrial squares were stolen from homestead allocation, and the treed BLM squares were brought back from this rapacious corporation. And that's the pattern that we have. And let's see what we've got here. Next slide. And so that pattern is, is part of the, the PR spin, the mythology and lies that come out of the timber industry. And it's also part of the exposure of people in this complicated marbleized landscape to the toxic practices of the timber industry. So the timber industry and the elected officials like Lane County commissioners who, who work for the timber industry um, tell us in a very general way over and over again that we need more logging to help our rural communities. Right? That's what we hear over and over again. It's based on an economic argument. And what they say is the economic benefit kind of moves around, you know, that makes it harder to argue with, and it's kind of a big, a big blur, you know, but, but you can sort of break it down to um, jobs, world jobs, funding for local governments, which is a different thing from world jobs, and, of course, the money they want for themselves. So, first I'm going to talk about the money for local governments. It's something you hear a lot about from county commissioners in particular. And this is very summarized. And how many of you have been to one of Chuck Willer's recent uh, timber tax presentations? And how many of you have been to one of Ernie Nimi's timber tax presentations? So, you've seen different slices. And this is a sort of a different summary, summary slice, um, you know, with... With Roy and Rob, we started talking about these timber tax issues and conversations of forest back in 2012, and it's really awesome and fundamentally important work to see people taking that and spreading the word and drilling down in more detail. But here's, here's a summary of how Oregon's state taxes on timber work, um, just one way of looking at it. So we're using how a homeowner is taxed as as a comparison, because that's what most people are most familiar with. So on the value of land, a home homeowner pays tax based essentially on the real market value of the land. There's a tax rate, there's the value of the land, that's what you pay every year. A small timber owner um, pays a tax not based on the real market value, but on something much lower. Um, the actual way it's calculated is too complicated to get into right now, but this number has actually probably gotten worse over time because the legislature hasn't changed the numbers, so it, it might be closer to 10% of the tax 
the market value of the land. And that's a similar system for industrial, for the land property tax for industrial timber owners. Now, if you make, if you have improvements on your personal house land, you're going to pay tax on those based on the real market value of the improvements. If you're a small timber owner on an annual basis, you won't pay taxes on the trees, which are, which in Oregon at one time were taxed as if they were improvements. You won't pay that, but it's deferred. It's not exempted. So you have to pay a tax later on when the trees are harvested. If you're an industrial timber owner with more than 5,000 acres, you don't pay an annual tax. It's not deferred. It's just wiped off the books. And now, when you sell your house as a homeowner, there's some exemptions, you know, if you sell it and roll it over into a new house and so on. But essentially, you sell your house, you have to pay a hefty amount of taxes on, not on your profits from selling the house, but on the book value of the house, the amount that the house sold for. So, again, there's some more complications there, but you have a big capital gains task tax. If you're a small timber owner with fewer than 5,000 acres, when you sell the trees, you have to pay a small severance tax, several percent, a few percent to the state to make up for all those taxes that, that were deferred over time. If you have over 5,000 acres, when you cut the trees that you didn't pay any tax on while they were standing, you cut them down, you don't pay any tax on that either. So the industrial timber owners who are poisoning in us and killing off our wild fish and, and now in the case of Weyerhaeuser charging huge, you know, several hundred dollars a year for rights for people to go onto their lands and hunt that they used to, used to do naturally and my people, rural people up the East Line County really care about. Um, they're totally, they're almost completely getting a free ride on the taxpayers. So think back to the checkerboard. Now what do we hear about the problem, the economic problem of funding to Douglas County or funding to communities? What we hear is we're not cutting enough wood on the BLM squares of the checkerboard and that's why counties don't have money. The same time that environmental protections rolled in and stopped the over-harvesting slowed down the over-harvesting on BLM land, the taxes here got exempted for big timber. They had a boogeyman, the spotted owl and the federal payments, but they just gave themselves, well, our legislators, many of whom are funded directly by timber and sand and gravel, gave them a free ride. And it's really hard to pin down the exact numbers and make the nice charts like they're going down, you know, BLM timber payments going down because those are those are simple numbers. These numbers are buried. In fact, I had a chance to ask the county administrator and the county chief budget officer a few days ago where these payments show up in the county budget and and if the county kept track of the amount of money they lose through these tax exemptions the way the state of Oregon does. The state of Oregon reports this every two years and you can see how many hundreds of millions of dollars are pocketed by big timber. The county administrator and the chief budget officer looked at each other and had blank looks and said, well, we'll have to get back to you on that. So I'm still waiting and I'm gonna bird dog that because it's been really hard to get those numbers and who knows, maybe I'll get them to, to, pit, to cough them up. So, so a different angle on, on why we economically are told we have to do more logging is jobs. So this is a map from, the, from 1955 of mills up and down the watersheds of East Lane County. And you can see little mills, well, various sizes of mills all the way around, all distributed throughout the countryside. And not, most of those mills are gone now. Um, more than three-quarters of them. And every time a mill closes, we're told it represents the, how terrible things are for the timber industry and how the sky is falling and we're not cutting enough timber and we have to, have to push to go even more aggressive to, for the good of our rural communities. The fact is, and again, detailed numbers are hard to get because they don't really want us to be able to get a handle on this, but across the Western United States, 
1980, there were 800 timber mills. 30 years later, there were 200 timber mills. It dropped by three quarters. Guess what? The average output per mill went up by a factor of four. So what's really going on in the timber industry is exactly the same thing that's happened in every other heavy industry, every other manufacturing industry in our country, that there's mechanization, automation, and centralization, and it's wiped out most of the jobs, and it's moved those jobs from the rural countryside to massive, intense mills that are actually inside the urban growth boundary, in the core of the, of the urban areas, like Roseburg's mill and Seneca Jones mill. It's okay, so we're not getting jobs from the timber industry, we're not getting tax payments to local governments, but what about something more nebulous about, you know, sort of community health overall? This is uh, some results from a really powerful series, of, one of a series of studies done by an independent uh, research, economic research group called Headwaters Economics, um, looking at the economic health of rural communities based on whether they were adjacent to federal land that was protected, no extraction, or whether they were next to federal land that, that had extraction, mining, logging, and so on. And what you see, these two green bars, if more than 30% of the land around a rural community was protected, their employment went up by 350%. If 20% of the land around them was protected, their employment went up by 300%. If less than 10% was protected, their employment stayed about even, even. And if there was no protected land around them, which is most of the cases, their employment dropped. Just one more lens to look at how, in the big economic picture, ravaging our forests doesn't help rural communities. Ravaging our forests hurts rural communities. So, fighting aerial spraying is an important and great thing to be fighting because toxins to ourselves, our neighbors, our kids, our animals is unacceptable. Chemical trespass should be something we can make a clear legal line and outlaw. It's also just one piece of the picture of how we need a paradigm shift across the board in our timber industry in the rural lands of East Lane County. So let's fight this fight and remember that it's a key branch in a much bigger battle. Thank you. That was Kevin Matthews giving a talk last week about the industrial forest lands. This is Conservation Today. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and that's the end of our show. We'll see you next week.